A new analysis by the Association for Canadian Studies finds the annual number of permanent residents admitted to the U.S. remains below pre-pandemic levels, while Canada set a new single-year record last year. New permanent residents here topped 405,000, more than twice the number who arrived in 2020, the year the pandemic began, and still nearly 20% more than in 2019. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And thanks so much for being back with us on a little more conversation. I'm Chelsea Bird, guest hosting tonight for Ben O'Hara Burn. And as you just heard, Karen Rebo of the Canadian Press reporting on new numbers in a report by the Association for Canadian Studies finding Canada is setting record numbers of new permanent residents. And we're talking about immigration now because immigration is hugely important in our country. It helps to drive our economy, shape our identity and build our country. But our next guest suggests that our immigration policy is at a crossroads here in Canada. She's an associate professor in the Department of Sociology at McGill University and Canadian Studies Director at the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Jennifer Elric is joining the show. Jennifer, good evening. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I would like to just sort of set the scene a little bit here because I'm sure a lot of people have long thought that Canada is a leader when it comes to immigration and immigration policy. So, Jennifer, where does Canada stack up globally in terms of our immigration efforts and numbers? Well, uh, you're absolutely right. Canada is still considered a leader. It's um, most universally admired uh, across the OECD. A lot of governments would like to emulate its policies. Um, In uh, 2016, uh, an issue of The Economist even noted that we were a heartening exception to a world of wall builders and door slammers. Um, And, uh, you know, not only has Canada managed to not engage in some of the more draconian uh, immigration control practices that we've seen in other countries uh, like the United States and the United Kingdom and Australia, but um, we have also um, consistently stuck to a program of mass immigration uh, from a wide variety of origin countries while avoiding uh, public and political backlash. So, I mean, that all sounds that all sounds good. That sounds like Canada is moving forward in a direction that we should. And yet you you help to identify three major challenges that you think are facing the country. And I want to get into each one with you, Jennifer, as our conversation goes on. But I, I just want to know first why you wanted to dive into this. Was there some red flag that you had seen or something that that made you say this needs a closer look? Well, I think immigration uh, scholars in Canada have had their eye on issues we identify in the article for a number of years now. Um, Because while Canada has made itself exceptional in the eyes of the world, uh, the foundations of that exceptionalism have been changing uh, steadily over the past uh, decade or so. Um, if, if you wouldn't mind, I would say a few words about what makes us exceptional and what I think is uh, so that that gives a bit of a backdrop as to, you know, what these what what these changes mean. Um, that Absolutely. Are currently unfolding. Yes. OK, so, I mean, Canada's you know, exceptionalism has been based you know, in part on good policy choices and in part on luck. Um, so first of the policy choices. Um, you know, as you, as, you, as you mentioned with the numbers um, in the beginning, you know, Canada has had this program of mass immigration, which involves admitting hundreds of thousands of immigrants each year and giving them immediate permanent residence. In other words, as soon as uh, skilled workers, family members and refugees are admitted 
um, and you know this is this has traditionally been the core of our program. They've immediately received uh, permanent settlement rights, uh, which are you know bring with them rights equivalent to citizenship, uh, just short of voting. They can achieve citizenship within five years. Eighty uh, percent of Canadian immigrants naturalize and become citizens, so they really have a perspective and access to settlement services, uh, and can start building their lives. And this has been the core of our program since the late 1960s, um, accompanied by an official policy of multiculturalism, uh, which creates uh, you know, a, a politically supportive environment uh, for immigration and which has fostered a lot of uh, strong public support for it. Um, but, and added to these good policy choices, there's also been a bit of luck. Uh, there's a bit of contingency involved there. I mean, first of all, um, is our geography. Um, you know, we are, you know, we have the United States to the south, and otherwise we're bordered by oceans, uh, Greenland. It's, it's relatively hard to come to Canada um, via land, for example. We don't share a major land border with, you know, a low-income country or conflict sure. regions. Um, so we don't have a lot of pressure. People cross our borders, um, you know, uh, except via the United States. But we also have uh, legal agreements, the safe third country agreement with the United States that prevents people from crossing through the United States uh, from conflict regions to the south. So uh, in a way, we are very we, we are very isolated um, geographically, which allows us to um, operate this very controlled, regulated immigration system that finds public support. Uh, and I think uh, we are making changes to our policy on the one hand. And also, I think moving forward, we're going to uh, see our geographic luck run out. So that brings us then to some of the challenges that you've identified. Exactly. And so there exactly. are there are three major challenges uh, that you and, and your colleagues at the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada identified, Jennifer. So the first is... Let's get into this one, the growing reliance on temporary foreign workers. Can you expand on that and why that is a threat? Absolutely. So you, you mentioned the large numbers earlier, and those were of the permanent residents I mentioned, the people who get you know, long-term settlement perspectives from the, from the get-go. You know, and for a long time, from the early 90s to the 2000s, we averaged about 250,000 permanent residents a year. And as you've said, we've recently exceeded the 400,000 mark. Um, but uh, since about the early 2000s, we have also been accepting uh, similarly high numbers or even more temporary uh, foreign uh, residents. And um, this, is, uh, this is problematic in the sense that uh, we are using these people with temporary permits to fill permanent labor demands in sectors like agriculture, uh, care work, uh, manufacturing, and food processing. Um, and so they are coming, as the permanent residents uh, long have, to fulfill economic needs. Uh, but they're not being given the same perspectives and rewards. Um, many of them are interested in staying, um, and some of them eventually might have a prospect of settlement under provincial nomination programs. Um, however, they they don't get immediate PR status. Uh, our permit renewal system can be complicated, which can lead people to overstay their visas intentionally or unintentionally. Um, and if they do eventually gain PR status, they will have been in the country for a number of years without access to the settlement services that p permanent residents have. So, um, you know, I think we have this growing ethical issue of, you know, very large numbers of people coming in um, and not being given the same level of commitment that we've traditionally given to our permanent residents.
So is the answer there then to to give them that immediate permanent residency? How do you incentivize that? Well, I think I think it's a it's an ethical it's an it's a normative political question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of governments have relied on temporary foreign worker programs uh, for a long time, especially in the 20th century. Um, and it's a political stance one can take. One can say, well, these are. These are people who are uh, wanted but not welcome, in the famous words of uh, political scientist Ari Zolberg. Um, and we will use their labor and allow them to stay temporarily and then um, ask them to leave at the end without making a commitment to them. I mean, that is a political choice that one can make. It's not a political choice that Canada has made. Um, and I think if we want to avoid um, you know, growing populations of via over, visa overstayers, um, you know, um, you know, and growing our, say, our undocumented population, which has been a consistent issue in the United States, but not in Canada, um, then this is one potential way forward. But I, it's not the path we've traditionally taken. Um, and I don't think it's a good idea for um, Canadian society or politics um, or the, the immigrants themselves. Another area that you saw that presented a, a challenge was new forms of irregular migration. Can you help explain, Jennifer, what that means? So when we talk about irregular migration, uh, we talk about uh, people who cross board, a border, an international border, without official permission of um, the government to do so. Um, and um, as I said before, Canada has benefited from you know, an exceptional geographic position that means uh, that this has not um, you know, often been a major feature of our immigration system. Um, and I mean, there, there were incidents um, you know, in the 90s, uh, for example, with, with boats arriving. You know, occasionally there have been these very visible moments of people arriving uh, without having first secured permission for entry. Um, but these have really become noticeable uh, since 2017 um, at the Roxham Road border crossing in Quebec. Uh, we've seen um, quite a number of people between 2017 and mid-2020, almost 60,000 people were um, intercepted uh, by the RCMP as they crossed into territory, into Canadian territory, um, uh, outside of the official ports of entry. Um, and, uh, you know, I think many, many listeners will have seen these, these images of people crossing at Roxham Road. And um, this is something that we've not been accustomed to for a long time in Canada. And I think the, the, the general issue there, um, I mean, anyone, according to international law, were signatories to the 1951 Geneva Convention, 1967 um, Protocol. Uh, anyone has the right to cross into Canada and to make an asylum claim. Um, however, people crossing uh, irregularly outside an official port of entry um, from the United States with whom we have a safe third country agreement, which means they're actually obligated to um, launch an asylum claim in the United States instead of crossing into Canada. These, this visibility of, of people crossing the border is, uh, I think, you know, I think migration experts see there a bit of a risk in the Canadian public, uh, getting a sense that the government has lost control over its borders. Um, now, 60,000 people sounds like a lot of people, but in the same uh, time frame from 2017 to 2020, we let in 1 million permanent residents. So, you know, we're, you know relationally, we're, we're talking about small numbers, but they're visible. And a lot of public support for immigration in Canada has uh, been contingent on uh, the public perception that the government manages migration, right? We choose immigrants. 
immigrants don't choose us. Um, and so to the extent to which, um, you know, changing um, political environments in Central and Southern America, perhaps also elsewhere, uh, sort of jeopardize this, this geographic uh, good luck that we've been having, uh, we may see more uh, irregular border crossings. They may become more visible. Um, and this could um, lead to the introduction of more draconian border control measures like we've seen in other countries, um, and also could perhaps lead to a tipping point in public opinion and uh, create support for uh, stronger anti-immigrant politics, which have not been a feature of our landscape. Jennifer, you've touched on two of them. We've spoken about Canada's reliance, or our growing reliance, rather, on temporary foreign workers. We also talked about irregular migration. Uh, But there is a third area of challenge, And that's debates amongst governments about the division of responsibilities for immigration and settlement. Now, all governments are going to disagree. So what's unique about those disagreements here in Canada and how does that cause an issue, in your opinion? Well, the model for success that uh, I described earlier was really established um, from the 1960s onwards uh, in an environment where the federal government really practically had sole jurisdiction over immigration policy. Practically, uh, although not legally, uh, going back to the 1867 uh, Constitution Act, um, Section 95 stipulates that immigration is one of those rare powers held by both provincial and federal governments. But in practice, um, you know, through until uh, the the late 1970s, early 80s, it wasn't of much interest uh, to the provinces. Uh, This changed um, in the run-up to the 1991 Canada-Quebec Accord, which uh, granted uh, the province of Quebec um, really exclusive control over its selection of economic immigrants, uh, with the federal government retaining uh, power over refugees and um, family immigration. Um, And after that, you know, by, by the 90s, other provinces were, were also pointing to strong regional differences in their labor force needs um, and wanted uh, better ability to you know, track and meet those and to benefit from immigration in a way that uh, provinces like Ontario, British Columbia and Quebec had historically enjoyed. Um, in, you know, in 1995, 88% of newcomers were settling in those three provinces and specifically in Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver. So, you know, starting with the 1991 Quebec-Canada Accord, you know, going up until uh, 2009, the federal government um, has made uh, provincial agreements with, uh, with the provincial governments, uh, so-called provincial nom- nominee programs. Um, there are now agreements with all provinces except Quebec, uh, because Quebec, as I said, has a special arrangement, and also with two out of the three territories. And what these agreements mean is that um, they, they give the provinces a set quota for planned permanent resident admissions each year. Um, and the province can use that quota from the, you know, a portion of the federal quota to nominate people for permanent settlement. Um, and uh, the federal, federal government helps with the vetting. But the, this gives the provinces a measure of, of control over selection. Um, and quite often, uh, provinces select um, temporary foreign workers who are already in the country. So it's actually one of the, one of the uh, best venues for temporary foreign workers to find uh, permanent settlement. So what this means, uh, I mean, why this is a potential problem is that 
you know, when, when you have, you know, one entity with, you know, strong executive control, you know, at the federal level, uh, then it's easy to, you know, adapt more swiftly. And also there's a great measure of, of executive um, uh, control in immigration. Uh, so this swift adaptation can be done behind the scenes or without parliamentary debates. Um, and so I think as, you know, regional economic uh, disparities between provinces evolve, you know, I think there's going to be, you know, calls for even greater control at the provincial level, probably within the provinces also um, at the local and municipal um, levels. And this could increase tensions that are already um, evident between the federal government and the provinces um, over the regulation and funding of immigration and settlement services. Um, we're already seeing these tensions in other areas as well, health care, for example. So um, I think as demand of the by the provinces for more control grows, we'll just see that as a, a potential source of, of conflict. Jennifer, I, I think we could probably keep going with this conversation. Uh, you are so well informed when it comes to talking about this, but unfortunately that is all the time that we have with you. So thank you so much for shining a light on a really important issue. I really appreciate the conversation. No, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on the show. Take care.